0: Very precise, down to a silence, the second hand sweeps up to midnight, click buzzword, Joseph de Rocher is a dead man.
1: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. You just heard bass baritone Ryan McKinney performing as the condemned murderer Joseph de Rocher in the Metropolitan Opera's new production of Dead Man Walking, adapted from the memoir by Sister Helen Prejean, who is played by acclaimed mezzo-soprano Joyce DiDonato. It's been performed on stage for the past several weeks and will be broadcast live to cinemas across the world this coming Saturday, October 21st, on this special episode of the Commonweal Podcast, I'm joined by McKinney and Sister Helen Prijan herself for a conversation about Dead Man Walking, the opera, the book, and why its message of mercy, forgiveness, and redemption continues to resonate with audiences today. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast.
2: The right to
1: kill that clip was from the duet, Forgiveness is in Our Hearts and Souls, and it captures the predicament of the character, Joseph Des Rocher, at a critical moment of Dead Man Walking. I'm incredibly grateful to be joined today by Ryan McKinney and Sister Helen Prejean. Ryan and Sister Helen, welcome to the Commonweal podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So, Ryan, you're in the midst of the final week of performances of Dead Man Walking. And to start, tell us about the production a little bit. Why is it so significant and what has it been like to perform this role and how have audiences been receiving the opera?
0: Yeah, so the biggest thing about why it's significant is it's the Metropolitan Opera, which is the most important and prestigious opera company in the world. And as this work has been, as I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, it's really the most popular modern opera around and has been performed a lot, but has never been performed at the Met. So bringing this to New York audiences has been really amazing. And this production that Ivo van Hova directed, it really hones in on the emotional story, particularly that my character and Sister Helen's character go through, but really everybody um, kind of takes away the stuff, the props and sets that you might normally expect in this opera and lays bare really the emotional storytelling of it. We've had standing ovations every night, but I think more importantly, you feel the kind of, the way the audience is with us in every moment. You know, I have a big, a couple of big moments of silence, which you don't hear that often in opera. And you could just hear a pin drop in in every single performance. And so it's been really incredible. And then talking to audience members afterwards, people have been really touched by it. I will say
1: that the performance I was at The ovation lasted for quite a long time that night and was definitely deserved. So, Sister Helen, of course, you've played a a, a huge role in adapting Dead Men Walking into an opera. And you were present for opening night at the Met earlier in the fall. How did seeing this production resonate with you this time around? What was it like?
2: Oh, well, you know what? It's like I've probably been about maybe 12, 14 times in different places. But I knew that this at the Met had that feeling of historicity to it. It, Mm. This is a moment in history that we've arrived at the Met, which means it's going to go out all over the world. And you know what I'm glad about? The death penalty is pretty much a secret ritual. Over 1,500 executions have happened in this country. We have shot people. We have Mm. gassed them. We have electrocuted them. We have lethally injected them. And nobody sees it. Mm-hmm. The public doesn't see it. And I knew the myth where you have live drum and where you have music to guide your heart was going to take people into deep places. Even those who come into it, maybe because it's more than about the death penalty. It's not about an issue. It's about human hurt. How do you move on? How do you forgive? And so I knew its significance and I and then seeing Ryan. And Joyce, do it. I got to tell you, it was very uplifting for me. And it gave me hope and courage that we're going to be able to finally shut down every execution chamber in this country. But it is going to take
1: work.
0: Mm -hmm. The
1: production was accompanied by some events that took place offstage. I guess there was a dress rehearsal that was attended by activists and formerly incarcerated persons. And there was a performance of the opera inside the walls of New York's Sing Sing prison. Can you tell us about that? how the idea for the performance come about. And then Ryan, you can speak to maybe what it was like to perform there.
0: Yeah, sure. Joyce has been working with men at Sing prison for, I believe, eight years. And she is part of a program facilitated through Carnegie hall and brought the idea to the Mets general manager, Peter Gelb, not only to do a performance there, but to teach some of these men who are in this music program, the chorus parts and have them perform with us. And, it was an involuntary thing. It was two days after opening. So for us opera singers, that's a pretty quick turnaround. And she asked the whole cast, if you want to do this, you're welcome to. You're not obligated. And the entire cast said yes. All mm-hmm. of us thought this is an incredible opportunity to do this piece in this really unique way. And we were there for most of the day because there's a lot that goes into being able to get inside a prison. And and we need we wanted to rehearse with them and get to know them. And then we performed... Uh, in the evening for a big chunk of the population. And it was moving on many levels. But one thing that stuck out to me is that when I'm performing this role at the Metropolitan Opera, when I first come on stage, people really hate my character because they've seen this horrible crime. And that's the way it's written. It, it should be that way. And the arc of it is to let people see my character as a real human being by the end. and somebody that's worthy of love, capable of love. What was very interesting at seeing is it was immediately clear to me when I came out that the, f- the script was flipped, that these people identified with my character immediately. Mm. And that l- it made for an entirely different feeling mm. of the piece. And I said to Joyce on our way over there, I, I said, I'm not sure, can I do this like very intense confession scene in the faces of these men that have really gone through this thing? Do I need to pull it back a little bit? Do I need to pull my punches? And then, as soon as we got into the first scene, I thought, oh no, we have to really do this Mm. real way. And we did. And it was very emotionally intense. And it was amazing to have some of these men come up to me afterwards and say, I really appreciate how honest you were with that. I appreciate how authentic that was. I felt seen, and that shame and guilt that you're talking about is real. So, thank you. And it was really incredibly moving experience for me
1: yeah but ryan you also had a personal connection to someone who had been on death row with a man named terence andras he was on death row in texas and unfortunately took his own life earlier this year i wonder if you could talk a little bit about how his memory has informed your performance in this role the way you approach this
0: yeah it's really sad because sister helen says you're worth more than the worst thing you've ever done and he was worth a lot more than that in a lot of ways. And he was an incredible poet and artist and became a very good friend of mine and was really funny and caring and thoughtful guy. And the conditions at the Polensky unit in Texas are really brutal. It's one of the more brutal places around. And his case had initially gone to the Supreme Court and was sent back to Texas. They said that his initial counsel was not good. And then, of course, by the time it came back, the Supreme Court was more conservative And they rejected the case. And shortly after that, he he had some mental health issues and and he spiraled. But the first time I did Dead Man Walking in 2019 in Chicago, he was still alive. And he and I talked a lot about it. And I said, I don't want to use our friendship as a kind of press piece to help me have a name. But he said, if you talk about me as a person, then I I want you to talk about us. As long as it's not just me as a case, as long as you talk about me as a person. So after he died and knowing I was going to be doing this, it was was really important to me to commit to it as much as I could to tell this story in a way that people's hearts could open as much as possible. I had some uh, fake tattoos that the Met makeup artist put on me and they asked me if I wanted anything in particular. And I asked for a black rose after this poem that Terrence wrote called The Black Rose. And I look down at it during the show sometimes because I remember, you know, it might be a hard day for me. Maybe my voice isn't working as well as I want it to be. Maybe I'm tired. But this audience is here today and they're not going to be here tomorrow. And they weren't here yesterday. And this is the time we have to tell this story. And who knows of these people who will make the difference that something could change in the future. So it's been a big part of my process with this piece.
1: Sister Helen, I want to get back to what you were just saying a moment ago and maybe ask about the state of your own advocacy today. I mean, times have changed since the mid-80s when you began your work uh, to abolish the death penalty, yet many Americans continue to support capital punishment, including, as you say, by things like firing squad and untested drugs. So where are you focusing the majority of your efforts? And do you think the U.S. could abolish the death penalty within a certain number of years, within your lifetime, our lifetimes? Absolutely. We are going to abolish the death penalty. I don't know a time frame,
2: mm-hmm. but I know this. I just got back from New York and the Met, the incredible energy around that, and a huge setback. You just selected a governor in Louisiana who has said that he is the one, he said, we'll do whatever we need to do to get these executions going. See, and what really frightens me is I know he has the power to do it. The same power that Trump had when after 17 years of no federal executions, he lined up 13 people and killed them. It's one of the fault lines in the way the Supreme Court set up the death penalty. First of all, they gave an impossible criteria. They said, you will only choose for death the worst of the worst murders. And nobody knows what that means, worst of the worst. Kill a child, kill a grandmother. Kill a policeman, kill a farmer. Who knows what worst of the worst is? And then they coupled that, very fuzzy criteria, with complete discretion of prosecutors to seek death and to see it through or not. So whenever you have a death happening, it's because somebody is pulling that trigger to make it happen, as Trump did before he left office. Then as Oklahoma following him, the attorney general of the state lined up 22 people to be executed. And these are real deaths. And that's the thing. People hear statistics, they but I've been in there with six human beings, six who got word you got four more days to live, three more, and to count down with them in the last days of their life. It's an unbearable torture. And to have the distance of the public from it. And then Louisiana, the people handily voted this guy in. So I know we got work to do. My own home state of Louisiana, we're going to have a meeting this week. We got to plan a campaign and we got to get to the people. And in the churches, we have the bishops now they're coming out. They're saying the right things, the bishops. But the people in the pews haven't changed very much at all because it's a real thing of education on the ground with the people. And what gives me hope is that the 37 years I've watched when people can get close to the story and really see the whole thing that we don't have to kill human beings that they get it. I know there's hope that people have good hearts. The job is to do it. So right now, we're facing a terrible thing in Louisiana. So what do you do when you get set back? You organize. You get out on the ground with people. You go door to door. You start educating them. But it's the hard work. Look at the state of Virginia, which executed more people than any other state. And look what Virginia did. Virginia abolished the death penalty. They reached out to law enforcement, they reached out to victims' families, they reached out to conservatives, they reached out in every way and began to work with them to educate. So that's what we got to do.
1: Our conversation with Ryan McKinney and Sister Helen Prejean will continue in a minute.
2: I'm Claudia Avila-Cosnahan, Director of Mission and Partnerships at Commonweal. One thing I love about Commonweal is our spirit of curiosity. It shapes everything we do, from religion to politics to culture and the arts. Consider becoming a Commonweal associate today. Just visit commonwealmagazine.org forward slash donate. Your gift helps support everything we do, including this podcast. Now let's get back to the conversation.
1: You say education, and, and Ryan, I'm going to ask you a question about the fact that, this, that the Met will be broadcasting Dead Man Walking live in cinemas. I guess there's some controversy already with one North Carolina public radio station threatening not to hear the performance, but maybe it speaks to the power of contemporary opera. What do you think about that? And I guess also, are there other productions ahead of contemporary opera that you are looking forward to being a part of?
0: Yeah, so... That North Carolina radio station, in fact, changed their position after the outcry. It was quite a silly uh, position, frankly, because the idea that Dead Man Walking and these other contemporary operas have themes that are inappropriate. I don't know if anybody listening has ever heard an opera or heard of Carmen or... <laughs> exactly. I mean, La Traviata, but these are not exactly PG themes. Um, mm-hmm. Opera is known for murder, rape, all kinds of terrible goings-on. And so, of course, man Walking actually fits right in with that, but has this incredible, uplifting way of presenting it. I think it's great, though, that people are talking about this, that people have strong opinions, that it's only in recent years that opera has been this kind of museum art form. When Verdi and Wagner and Mozart were writing operas, these were political statements and were relevant to what was going on in these people's lives that were watching them. And they weren't just for the elite, they were for the people. And so I think that the Met kind of going back to this idea of we're going to do things that are really relevant to our audiences and to what's happening in our lives today is wonderful. And I'm, I have a, a few modern operas coming up in my life that I can't quite announce yet. But I will say that anybody that can check out Malcolm X at the Met or Florencia are two really incredible newer pieces that I think speak to themes that really matter to people right now. I'm, I'm really proud of the Met for making this change. I think it's really the future of opera. Mm-hmm. Sister
1: Helen, speaking of
0: the Met in particular, there's an interview
1: with you in the playbill for Dead Man Walking, which is a, it's a lovely interview. And there's a phrase you use, though, in, in that interview. And you say, quote, we really are a life people. And that kind of jumped out at me when I read it. I was sitting there as the, before the performance was ready to get underway. And I made a mental note of it and folded the page. What did you mean by that? And I guess, what would it mean for Catholics to really embody that? Oh, yeah.
2: That was the heart of my conversation with Pope John Paul II. I said, I meet a lot of Catholics who said it pro-life. What they mean is they're for innocent life, but not guilty life. They're all for execution. And isn't our job as a church, can you help the church understand, pro-life means pro-dignity of every human being. It's in alignment with the universal declaration of human rights and the dignity of every person. I described to him in that letter, Dominic, of what it meant to take a human being who was alive and walk with him. And he was saying, just pray God holds up my legs. And he strapped down, rendered completely defenseless. And I think the power in the opera is this is done in complete silence of the killing of Joseph Rocher. All you he hear is the machines. And we try to mechanize our mask, the killing of human beings. My lethal injection, we're just, quote, putting people to sleep. So we really are a life community, means the American people are a life people. And actually, the Constitution made it very hard to sentence a person to death. You have to have unanimous jury. If even one on that jury has a reasonable doubt by any of the elements in prosecution, all of those are ways that people live. So the Constitution is bending over backwards because it's pro-life. And then the only way that you have all of this, these shenanigans that go on are by political people who up their own political career by cutting a notch in their belt and getting a death. And that's that's just what's happened in Louisiana. The governor, we're going to be tough on crime. They have ridden that wave of tough on crime. Now as people wake up, it's much more about being smart about crime. And look at the huge expense. You want to be pro-life? Look at the millions we're going to spend in Louisiana to kill people. When victims' families have so many real needs. They need counseling. Their marriages break apart. They need unemployment, help, because they lose their jobs. They lose focus. They need a whole lot of help from the state. But we're putting it into death instead of to life. I've been with audiences all over this country, in every state, in major cities, six, seven, eight times. Give people a chance. They're going to go for life. Most of them said, well, I didn't know it was like that. Because they don't know anything about it. They don't know how it's only poor people, how racist it is, how people with mental problems. Well, then you're right from wrong, the prosecutor will say. So anyway, it's all about waking up. I know I'm a servant of the story. And to see that story come alive on that met stage had to be one of the most satisfying feelings of my entire life.
1: Okay. So Ryan, there's a, a, a few parts in your performance where you really demonstrate this amazing physicality, one portion in particular where you're doing uh, a series of push-ups. And I wonder if you could just talk about uh, how that factored into the way you wanted to play this role or what that meant for you in this performance.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the time people ask about the push-ups and it can become this, oh, the baritone that has muscles kind of relief from the heaviness of the story. But the thing that I think about is this human being has this tiny room to exist in and has all of this anger to work through. And the push-ups are like this physical expression of this caged animal. And in the way it's set in the scene, it's not about being impressive. It's about just trying to get this anger out of his body. And, and actually really is necessary in the storyline for him to exhaust himself enough to let Sister Helen in the next scene. There's this kind of... It, he has to get that fatigued. And so to me, it's really... The storytelling of why that push-up scene exists is more important than, oh, it's so hard to do, to sing and do push-ups, whatever, which mm-hmm. it's challenging, but it's more trying to tell this story of a, of a human in a cage. I think people just forget that's what we're talking about here, that the human being is in a cage because that's where we're putting them and we're going to kill them. And this is how he deals with it. So in the introduction
1: to this segment, I I said that Dead Man Walking's message of mercy, forgiveness, and redemption continues to resonate with the people who see it today. And I'm going to ask each of you, why do you think that's the case? And maybe even though you are both so close to it, Maybe you can talk a little bit how it resonates with you. And, and Ryan, why don't you go first?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that stand out to me. I think Sister Helen's amazing book and the amazing story of her life. One of the things that jumps out is we think of the things these people have done as separate from us. But it's a thing awful people do. But I think deep down, like, we actually know that's not true. We know that we're the same kind of people that they are. And many of us have done things that we have a lot of shame about. Things that maybe don't rise to that level. But the understanding that someone that's done the worst thing you can imagine could be forgiven, could find redemption, could be released from that means that you yourself, that I myself could be released from whatever I'm holding. Mm -hmm. And when you add Jake Heggie's music that Sister Helen says is so eloquently, but that music guides your heart, right? It, the story is the structure, but you don't have to understand it. You don't have to agree with it to have that music enter you and open you up. And you don't just feel, oh, I could forgive this person that did this terrible thing. It's I could be forgiven for whatever I've done even if that's something really terrible, or I could forgive somebody that's done something to me, even if it doesn't rise to the level of someone going to prison. And I think that's a really universal experience for human beings. This holding on to what we've done wrong and what's been done wrong to us and not being able to let it go is such a blocks the joy in our lives. And when you release that, even though this story is really sad, right, it's a sad opera to most people, but you talk to people afterwards and they have all of this joy because they're released from this um, feeling of hate that sort of pervades everything right now. And I think that's the way the music does that without you having to really think about it. And then the framing of the story, it it it's, can be very transformational. And and I think also there are some people who it makes very angry because I think they're not ready to have that transformation. And that's fair. Not everyone is in that place in their lives. But I I think that's why it elicits such visceral reactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and Sister Helen, what about you? Talk a little bit about how it still works its spell on you or how it still resonates yeah. with you. Well, you know what I love about it is that I'm presented in such a
2: human way. Because mm-hmm. I did make mistakes. I didn't know what I was doing. Tim Robbins' famous little thing that he'd say while he was working on the film was, the nun is in over our head. I was. Oh, was. Mm-hmm. And boy, there's that scene in the opera when I'm between the victim's family saying, you don't know what it's like. The mother of Joe going, you don't know what it's like. And I was over my head and I made the mistake of not reaching out right away to victim's family mm-hmm. and learned from that. And so I love that what Sister Helen Ari is my journey to Christ, to the people, to myself, made me wise make me strong make me human so it's a very human story of me and i like it they don't present me as this hero who just takes care of every challenge that comes along and i i like it then it presents me as a human being it's the way i wrote the book mm. and i found out when you write a book maybe if i'd been an expert on the death penalty that wrote dead man walking people would have started fighting me on the first page oh yeah you're an expert oh But people open the book and they go, well, Ananda doesn't know what she's doing. Let's see what happens to her. So it makes it easier to bring people into the journey because you got another human being.
1: Sister Helen and Ryan McKinney, thank you so much for being with us at the Commonwealth Podcast. Thank you.
2: Great being with you.
1: The Metropolitan Opera's live NHD performance of Dead Man Walking will be broadcast in movie theaters around the world this Saturday, October 21st. Check your local listings. I really recommend it. Having seen the performance itself at the Met, I can't say enough about it. You can also see more of Commonweal's coverage of Dead Man Walking on our website, including an interview with composer Jake Heggie and a review of the performance itself. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.